broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. Is this thing on? Are we on? Yes. Hello, everybody. Oh, yeah. It is Sunday, uh, November 6th. It's the main course, and um, <clears throat> we are very, very happy to be broadcasting live from Roberta's Restaurant, the ever-growing and successful Roberta's Restaurant. I'm Patrick Martins. My co-host for the Week in Review is... Executive producer of the network, Jack Inslee. Good morning, Jack. How did you like my fairway commercial? It was really good. I think they need to send us some new text. Uh, <laughs> we've been playing that one for a while, but it's good that they hire good worker bees. Yes. Um, we have a great show. Uh, I actually met him for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, he instantly became a, uh, a favorite of everyone at my table. Uh, Robert Finn is on. He is the chef of Fatty Crab. Uh, their downtown location on Hudson. He's going to be a guest. We also have an old friend, Michael Dimon, the owner of C2 Table. So it's going to be a real great show. We're going to, of course, do the weekend review. Um, but there are a couple things I wanted to say. First of all, the marathon was very, very exciting. Mary Katani from Kenya went on a huge rampage. Like She was so far ahead of the rest of the pack. It was ridiculous. For the full, like, 24 miles, she was just way ahead. Like, no other even competitor could even see her. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, two women from Ethiopia came back and uh, took her, you know, overtook her for the lead. But it was very, very exciting. Are you going to run in the marathon next time? No, but I did run 12 miles this weekend, six yesterday and six today. I think you're getting ready for it. I am getting right. But if you think about it, it takes me one hour to run six miles. And those people in just over two hours run 26 miles i mean it's wow. absolutely unbelievable those people people are basically sprinting the whole time well before we get into the weekend review with jack uh, which is you know really one of my favorite um moments uh of the week on the heritage radio network we have 28 shows but this weekend review is a kind of a time of reflections and um <clears throat> some of the stuff is the stuff that i pick but most of the stuff is the stuff that jack sees as being the most interesting and poignant and informational you know from across the 28 shows so but before we get into that i wanted to uh uh clarify a, a statement i made about people who work at goldman sachs um <clears throat> i had said that you know they were all evil and that they should all you know find uh you know new jobs if they can and uh you know i was exempting the lowest uh you know people there within their totem pole but you know certainly those uh, top 25 percent let's say people from goldman sachs you know which is like one of the companies against uh that occupy wall street is most focused on i just wanted to explain you know where i'm coming from with that 
And, um, you know, I don't love getting into stats because I think stats are like a cushion, like a safety net. They can be made up. They can confuse different people, have different stats. You know, I just like looking at facts that I understand. And, you know, uh, we work with about we're probably the primary source of income for about 50 families in agriculture. And I'll tell you, for those farming families, which is, you know, 30 families, let's say, who are farmers, I mean, they literally cannot sleep at night. And the reason is that their feed costs are explosively high. And the reason is, you know, ethanol is is a big issue. And just this futures trading, this Goldman Sachs futures ag index, or, you know, whatever they call it. And that's, you know, Uh, You know, they probably have a lot of reasons why they do that to make money. But, you know, the farmers I work with literally lose sleep at night. That's every night of the year they lose sleep because the grain prices to feed their pigs have quadrupled or tripled or doubled. And that's not fair. And if, you know, people in some, you know, Wall Street office are pulling strings that have that effect, then those people need to be called out. So I've adjusted based off of a comment that Jack uh, wrote under a different name to uh, <laughs> stop me to uh, insult Goldman Sachs. What about a ban? We sell to 70 restaurants in New York City. What if all 70 restaurants banned the top 25% wage earners from Goldman Sachs? I mean, if these restaurants are about what's good, clean, and fair, what about banning that top 25%? Anyway, I won't uh, get further into that, but um, I will talk a little bit about Michael Pollan before getting into the Week in Review. We actually asked Michael to write a quote for us. I mean, he was one of the people who helped write our mission statement. We met in a hotel room, me, Todd Wickstrom, and Michael Pollan. And, uh, you know, he was a really, you know, he is a great guy. He's a great writer. But we asked him recently to retweet us because we thought that would really help our our farmers and uh, help us spend food. And he was like, you know, your food is too expensive. And it made me see right then when he said, you know, your food is too expensive for me to endorse because I'm trying to feed the world for low costs. Um, it kind of reminded me of a warning sign that Carlo Petrini, I worked door to neck, desk to desk with Carlo for a year. And Carlo said that gastro- gastronomes are gluttons and ecologists are way too sad. And he viewed the gastronomic kind of gluttony side coming from Italy and Europe and the very dire eco side, uh, the ecology side, the people that like thrash themselves for spending too much money on food. He called those people, you know, mainly it was an American movement he attributed to. So what he defended was an eco gastronomic movement, one that believed in the land, but one that also believed in quality. And um, Ann and I were watching TV yesterday, and Pillsbury had an ad for pigs in a blanket. And I think that a pigs in a blanket costs like 8 or $9, you know, or something like that for a package of 12 of these things. So in the past, I was always comparing, you know, McDonald's or eating out to our foods ordered at home. And that was kind of like comparing apples to oranges because eating at home is always going to cost less than eating out, you know, and you can't really compare those two. But Pillsbury pigs in a blanket can be compared to, you know, uh, you know, eating at home because that's something that you eat at home. And, um, you know, I was thinking that Michael Pollan rather, you know, he's 
pro-Occupy Wall Street, I think, but yet he is anti the very farmers who have resisted Wall Street and who have, you know, remained loyal and true to agricultural roots and decency to the animals. So it just kind of bothers me that Pollen doesn't concern himself with quality because a quarter pound of $28 prosciutto is still $4, you know, uh, $4 or $5 can easily be a quarter pound of our prosciutto at our meat shop. And it just seems unfair that Michael Pollan would distance himself from someone like Sam Edwards, who's producing delicious prosciutto, you know, where even a, a couple of ounces totally fills people up for an appetizer. And meanwhile, by distancing himself from us, he's kind of pro Pillsbury pigs in a blanket. And uh, what he should be worried about is quality. Uh, and, you know, fulfilling calories and things that really are of the highest quality but can be eaten for cheap rather than just saying, you know, Larry Sorrell, Red Waddle producer, you are the antithesis of my movement. And um, anyway, I don't know if any of that made sense, but I do think there's a truth to that. People should be promoting quality, not just we've suffered enough in the world. Uh, you know, we shouldn't just be, you know, anti the very people who are resisting. We should be pro uh, each other and anti corporate. Anyway, that's why I, I talk about this stuff. I mean, it does come from close. So enough with that. We can review. Well, Jack. Speaking of quality and heritage, I cooked that bone in uh, the fresh ham last night. Twenty two pound ham for me and my friends. And it was good? It was damn good. So start us off. Where do we start? Week in review, Jack. So uh, I you know, unknowingly picked up a copy of the New York Times, and there you were with the Heritage team being mentioned for the meat shop alongside a lot of other friends of the station, like the Apple Stones from Fleischer's mm-hmm. and the Meat Hook guys. And uh, That yeah, was a real really That was awesome the first article. time my name ever was in all capital letters ever, <laughs> other than when I hit caps lock uh, you know, by mistake. So what's the next thing? Uh, who else was on this week? Oh, we also had Mimi Sheridan come on. Oh, yeah? And um, she was on with somebody else from the school food program, and they were kind of talking about the small changes being made in New York City to improve school food. And a really funny thing, they were talking about how, you know, they're trying to get all the kids to drink water with their meals. Mm -hmm. But if you give kids tap water, or if, if it's clear or room temperature, they won't drink it. If it comes from a bubbler and it's clear and cold, they will drink it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is such a we're, – we're so lucky to have, uh, you know, Taste Matters. It's uh, Mitchell Davis, the vice president right. of the This was actually – this was uh, guest hosted by Karen Karp. Oh, yeah? Yes. And it was a good show. I mean, was that yeah. Mimi Sheraton's first time on, right? It was her first time here, and she's very passionate about the school food issue, and they really did get deeply into it. So I would say go listen to that if you can. My only warning about the school food movement is that a lot of organizations, like, for instance, Slow Food, embrace – School food, school food, school food, school food, which is like the toughest obstacle for the farms that we believe in to, you know, help. You know what I mean? It it is literally the largest issue. And I love that Alice Waters does it, but I do think it's a very easy uh, mission for any nonprofit group or any food group to take on. And sometimes I wish that they would take on more realizable goals, do you know what I mean? Like goals that they have within their hands, within their lifetime to fix, you know, rather than just say, we're pro school lunch, we're pro school lunch. I'm like, what about being pro, uh, you know, gourmet, you know, or food and wine magazine cafeteria serving all local f- products? 
that seems like a good first step, you know? And I think that sometimes, you know, by shooting for the moon, you end up ignoring an entire world of pain in between. But um, So give us this update on the McRib, uh, yeah, Jack. Yeah, the McRib. Well, it was a big issue out, there. surprise, surprise, the Smithfield, who I guess provides them with whatever they're making that McRib with, uh, they're being brought up on animal welfare charges from the Humane Society, or mm-hmm. complaints, rather. So, you know. Just more to add on to the whole McRib thing. So there was an, that was a Huffington Post article, right? Yeah, that it's all over the place. Everyone's kind of reporting it. And who accused them? The Humane Society. The Humane Society. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. I mean, we've had Temple Grandin on here before, and I know Smithfield promotes that Temple promotes them. That's Cargill, no? Uh, well, or Cargill, you know, which is cut right. from the same stone. And, uh, you know, I just warn, would warn people to be careful of the imprimatur that Temple Grandin gives companies. Because what she's dealing with is the last 10 minutes of the animal's life. And that is very important. And, and, and that, you know, she's, I, I give her great kudos for fighting the battle for those last 10 minutes. But by, you know, giving a thumbs up to Smithfield or a thumbs up to Cargill, you know, it kind of implies that their whole system works. When in reality, I think they confine animals in small spaces and, you know, animals are like dogs or humans, you know, they deserve space. And, you know, it's like spending your whole life in an economy plane seat. I mean, that doesn't really seem fair. And, uh, you know, my kind of uh, you know, advice to slow food, kind of lowercase slow food, you know, entrepreneurs is make up all the claims you want to because the big guys do. So anyway, they, you know, they lie left and right. So, you know, why should we always play by the rules when certain people, you know, will use whatever tactic to make their millionth dollar? Um, so now I see snack food is bullshit from Erica Wides. Jack plays clip. What, what's that, Jack? <laughs> yeah, well, she kind of went off on snack food and how it was interesting. She said Tostitos have more uh, nutritional value than um, Pirate's Booty organic stuff. So it's just kind of talking about the greenwashing and snack food and how, you know, they'll lead you to believe these are organic Cheetos or something, but it's all the same shit. Do you have a clip or? I have a clip about how we're spending our snack dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Erica Wides is really one of our our most informative shows on the network. Here's the clip. We now spend nearly 50% of our food dollars on away from home meals and snacks. 50% of our food dollar is spent on food outside of the house. Ask your great grandma if she's still alive. How much she used to spend. Yeah, there it is. Well, no, I, I, it's a great thing. And that's why I, I'm saying, well, I mean, it, it, that ties into a lot of issues. You know, most of the people are spending their food outside. Um, and I actually am a big fan of Newman's own organic, Nell Newman and her father, Paul Newman. Um, I love that they make snack foods that are 100% organic because, you know, I do think you have to play by the rules. Um, this, you know, let's learn to cook movement. Everyone in the inner cities in America, let's learn how to cook and let's make three course dinners. You know, I kind of personally liken that to, you know, my father lives in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he's like, oh, once, you know, all Brazilians become educated and, you know, go to college, I'm like, what? Like 99.8% of the people live in poverty. That's a long ways away. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, you know, I, I love talking about people that make snack food, 
fast food restaurants that serve all organic, sustainable products. You know, you do have to give people what they want. You know, you can't expect them to, you know, even have the time, uh, you know, to cook six, seven days a week. Um, I see here you also write Alexander. Breaking news from Cooking Issues. Yes. Breaking, breaking news. Umami. Let's play the clip. Oh, man. Okay, uh, three questions came in from Andrew. One, how can we know umami exists? Do we have taste receptors committed uh, to these umami-specific amino acids? Yes. Yes? Yeah. It, the research was done in uh, the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, 2002. We have taste receptors for umami. It's no longer a question. It's fact. There you go. So, mommy, well, we have a chef here. Uh, Finn, do you agree? Uh, I mean, Robert, I should call you. I always call you Finn because it's such a cool name. But Robert, does uh, umami, is that a real uh, taste? Um, Yeah, of course. You know, we use uh, a lot of things to get umami out and things. You know, um, when we're doing stock, we throw like mushroom stems, everything like that into it. It's all about the depth of flavor that it provides. Um, MSG is one of those receptors. And, you know, you can definitely taste the difference like when you make your basic, you know, broth and things like that, like if you apply a little MSG to it, like just the way it hits your palate is so much richer and so much deeper. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely as a group, I think uh, I can comfortably say all the fatty crab loves our umami. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and yes. then, of course, we are very pro Occupy Wall Street. We were uh, going to read a quote from Joel Salatin, this farmer. Um, but, you know, he actually came out with an article once uh, that he wrote anti heritage uh not us but just the idea that heritage breeds mean anything he says you know he actually took the time to come out against a a segment of agriculture that's even smaller than his segment and i always thought like with all the corporate enemies in the world why would you spend your time coming out against and i can name them my name guys like frank reese who started the turkey movement it's fine, Joel, that you you know choose to raise the commodity genetics. That's no no one is coming out, you know, against you for that. But to choose to pick other people, um, you know, who are trying to do fight the fight, fight the good fight, and come out against them and divide these you know very small slow food movement into pieces. Um, we will not read your quote at Occupy Wall Street. But, uh, about Occupy Wall Street, but um, you should be against corporate food, not heritage foods. Um, so anyway, that's that. And uh, Occupy Wall Street, Jack, is our big event coming up? I mean, Occupy, you did a great job covering Wall Street so far. Oh, thanks. I felt like Anderson Cooper. You yeah, know, and there. look like him too. Thank you. <laughs> um, there's actually a follow-up rally, uh, you know, basically last week's Occupy, or two weeks ago, was it now? The Occupy Against Big Food rally was all snowed out because of that ridiculous storm, but they will be reconvening next Saturday. Hmm. Um, so that's something to look out for. We'll be promoting that at the station all week. And what's your surprise question for Patrick as it relates uh, to the last yes, episode we had, uh, of You Look Hungry? We had Julia Tertian on, who's uh, actually Gwyneth Paltrow's personal chef, amongst other things, and uh, the conversation went to last meals. I don't know if you know, but um, in Texas, I believe they banned last meals now because one of the prisoners... Mm-hmm. He went all he, crazy. Yeah, he ordered a whole bunch of things and then didn't eat it. And they were like, okay, that's it. That's no, it. We're no going to last meal. But anyway, they, they were going, back. you know, they were asking each other what their respective last meals would be. Julia actually said toast, which was really an interesting answer from a foodie. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know what your last meal would well, be. Well, first of all, toast is a sad last meal. Because what is she afraid of? <laughs> pooping in front of the mortician or something like that? Come on. Last meal, toast. That's not a gastronome. And it makes me think that Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't eat very well. <laughs> But I would just, you know, I would choose, um, you know, I would probably just 
come to Roberta's and hang out with everyone. Ah, there you go. You know, and and uh, eat uh, you know a one ounce piece of octopus for sixteen dollars. No, but I do think <laughs> that uh, it is very very delicious here, and I would just want to be with family and friends. And you know, I guess I'd eat meat. But um, anyway, well, thanks for that surprise question. Jack, I'll ask you the same after the show. We're going to take a 30-second break and come back with one of the most uh, verbally gifted specials announcer, Robert Finn, chef at Fatty Crab. Here we are back on the main course, broadcasting out of Roberta's with Chef Robert Finn. Welcome, Robert. Hey, what's up, Patrick? So tell us about uh, your work at Fatty Crab. Tell us about your personal goals of, uh, you know, what you bring and what you do to that restaurant. Um, You know, I started with those guys about two years ago. I interned with them during culinary school and just kind of found my groove with them. I left for a little bit and then I came back, helped uh, Fatty Q for a bit, opened St. John. Now I'm the chef at Downtown Crab. Um, I just love the palate. You know, something nice to be said about having that sweet, sour, salty, you know, spicy, umami, all that into one. And, you know, we don't get that anywhere else. And, uh, you know, Zach and I will frequently talk about it where, you know, my time at Danielle, I was like, man, this is great. Like, the technique is awesome. I'm eating the food. And I was like, damn, like, I wish they just put a little chili on this or, like, a squeeze of lime and, you know, some gula would make that awesome. Like, so it's it's a lot about just approaching food from the standpoint of, like, hey, this is how we like to cook and you know, using the Malaysian palate to really bridge what we do. Um, as far as what I do, I just kind of go in and screw around all day mm-hmm. and, you know, just play with different things. Like, uh, we're fermenting our own creme fraiche now. Wow. You know, all sorts of stuff. Like, anything we can do to just commit more to, you know, it's made in-house, we're doing this fresh, we're doing this, you know, local and responsible. That's pretty much how we're trying to approach it. So, um, tell me, brief headline. So, you went to culinary school? Yeah, I was uh, an FCI grad. Uh, spent a little time with Dave Arnold. Uh, got into a lot of fights with a lot of French dudes. Now, uh, did um, do you recommend to young kids that they go to gra- uh, culinary school, or do you recommend that they just get a lowly job in the kitchen somewhere and work their way up? It's you know, it's definitely two different approaches. Um, I went to school with a lot of kids who you know came from uh, very substantial backgrounds, and mommy and daddy had a lot of money, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I want to cook." So they just kind of threw them into it. And then, you know, there were a couple of kids like me who had to work our ass off to really pay for everything, mm-hmm. you know, took out student loans and know we'll be in debt for like 40 years because of it. But it was a necessary step um, to get into New York. It's a huge deal. As far as, you know, the young kids out there, you know, throughout the country, if there's not a culinary school by you, that's cheap. Like, you know, I know uh, Hudson Community College has a good culinary program. It's a two year guy. But uh, just, you know, a county college program's great. And then just get in the city and start trailing. Now, let me ask, can you learn at a, uh, let's say, a hotel or some, uh, you know, steakhouse in Cleveland or in Cincinnati or in the suburbs or, you know, if you live in Salina, Kansas and there's a, a cafeteria there or a coffee shop that just basically makes burgers and eggs in the morning. I mean, can a kid learn in an environment like that still? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, one of the things that I always loved, like, you know, back in the time at Danielle, any stagiaire that came in, they're like, make an omelet for me. And it's basic things like there's always something to be learned anywhere aside from, you know, the places like 
chilies and stuff like that. There, just, there's nothing. Yeah, you're opening bags and throwing things into a fryer and a combi oven. Like, you know, any restaurant that's trying to do their part and is actually cooking food, there's always something to be learned. You know, like I started at a diner back in the day with, uh, you know, a couple of friends and just kind of learned from there. And that's really the best thing, you know, focus on everything, focus on technique. You know, bottom line is like, you know, make the big city plan happen. You can definitely go for it. But spending 50K just to break into the city is hard. Take me through the fatty crab menu and just tell me about some of the things that excite you about it and, and what makes you guys unique and all that. Because I know you do some very, since uh, you've gotten there, I, I've noticed very interesting orders from you because you buy a little bit from Heritage and buy a lot actually from Heritage Bellies. But you're also ordering cheek and jowl and ham, whole ham, 25 pound ham. So tell me, take me through livers. I mean, it goes on and on. Tongue. Yeah, I, I fell in love with the whole uh, awful movement this year. So, so tell uh, us about <laughs> it and how it manifests itself through your work at yeah. Patty. Um, well, you know, right now, like what we've been doing is pretty much gearing the menu up to be uh, not so much more esoteric, but more towards how we want to eat. You know, there's been a lot of dishes that, you know, Zach and Corwin have done throughout the years. And Zach it's really Palaccio, cool. Corwin Cave. Yeah, Zach Palaccio and Corwin Cave, our creative director, I think he's called now. I'm not really sure what oh Zach's title is. He's the man. He's in charge of everything. <laughs> and Corwin is the executive chef. Big ups. Um, but, uh, you know, pretty much they've been doing the thing for six years and, you know, downtown, especially like people come in, they expect one aesthetic and that's kind of the fun thing about, you know, how I view myself, this group, like I'm a young dude, I'm 24, you know, I just came out of school about a year and a half ago and, uh, it's great just being able to sit there and be like, Hey, we've been doing this and, you know, having that fresh perspective on it is really cool. Um, so, you know, like we have this one dish we do, it's called low sea fun. It's, uh, this short rice noodle with a broth of, uh, sweet soy, the kikat manis and a little bit of a bread, like a black vinegar, you know, Chinese sausage, shiitakes, etc. We lightened up the broth a lot. We made it a little more elegant, like, so you get a bit of a more like silky and kind of like porky richness. And then, uh, we're hitting that with a little bit of charred vinegar braised pork tongue and, uh, some, uh, diced liver and heart that just gets swirled in at the end raw. So, you know, you get these really cool, funky textures and like it's a lighter broth. But, you know, with the noodles and everything, it's so much like just silkier and more decadent with all the, uh, you know, awful, which is great. Um, and, you know, aside from that, like the pork cheeks are on the menu now. We're doing them braised in hot mustard with a uh, Chinese hot mustard creme fraiche. Now, cheeks are different than jowl. People confuse it. A jowl is like uh, what they make guanciale out of. It's like a three, two, three pound piece. Now, cheek is just like weird little like yeah. four, two ounce it's mushy go what the hell is a cheek it's a little nugget of glory um it's wrapped in this like a uh, fat and sinew it's got collagen running all through the middle of it um i've had it where it's just been friggin' awesome like it's used a lot in italian cooking so back in my day we used a lot of cheeks when i was out in jersey um but uh you know it's just so damn good when you cook it right like it gets this really like viscous fat that just coats your palate and like just eating it you know the meat's really nice like i could pair the meat texture almost to like the loin like it kind of could dry out on you it's got like that graininess but uh it's just so damn good and, like it's an off cut you know it's something that i guarantee in five years we're gonna see on every menu in new york like people are starting to love it well that's an interesting question you bring up so like obviously fatty cues fatty crabs and fatty cues that whole restaurant group but also spanning that generalizing across all you know restaurant groups you guys do all this like standard stuff but then a guy like you very smart obviously you know gifted in the kitchen from the meal based off the meal i had there like how do you add to a menu you know at an establishment and you know be unique 
while still staying true to the menu. I mean, how do restaurants in the city kind of like allow a guy like you to be creative and find artistic outlets while at the same time, like you're not just coming and making fatty crabs, something that it was wasn't before yeah um it's a fine line to walk you know we're very fortunate with fatty crab that like we can really isolate the menu and say like these are 10 things people come here just to have um you know it's a discussion we've all had you know many times over like hey this stays this stays this stays um we're fortunate where you know i think people not that it becomes like you know overdone over time or mundane but i think that you know people kind of come in like they expect to see little changes from us and it's really cool it allows us to kind of push in a different direction um, so, you know, between having that and being able to do specials, like you can kind of go outside the box a little bit. Like I remember, uh, back in the day when I was at Fatty Q, we ran a, uh, coconut cream, uh, and four peppercorn, almost like au poivre sauce and threw some elbow macaroni in it, hit it with some smoked gruyere and did a mac and cheese. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're sitting there and it's like, yeah, man, we're this Asian barbecue joint and we just made Asian mac and cheese and we're all high five. And <laughs> Zach found out about it and he's like, that's disgusting. <laughs> and, uh, we sold 28 orders that night. Oh, it was really? great. Yeah. We killed it. Nice. Um, it's a lot about that and being able to just kind of play with things and do cool specials and then people get interested in it. And then it becomes, you know, a focus on like, yeah, we have the staples we can go there for, you know, we're going to get the crispy pork and watermelon. We're going to get the Nasi Lamak. We're going to get the beef rendang. But like, maybe there will be something cool on the menu. You know, maybe they're going to be doing like a potato velouté with, you know, curry spices and buttermilk fried oysters. Maybe it's going to be, you know, something like the cheek, something like the lemon curry mussels. So now when do you come up with ideas like this? Do you come in like uh, in the shower or sitting on the toilet or are you in the kitchen with everything and just putting things together and adding and taking away? Like where, where do these epiphanies come from? Um, you know, a lot of it just comes from, uh, you know, just little ideas jotted down over the past two years. You know, I'll go through old notebooks and little recipe ideas and, you know, St. John was such a blessing because it was just kind of like, hey, you know, Finn, we really don't have a lot of variants and ingredients. We've got a VIP. Go do a tasting menu. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you're talking St. John's. You actually opened a restaurant on the island of St. John's. Yeah, we were down in the Virgin Islands. Uh, they sent the whitest team possible. All of us are Irish. Huh. We got sunburnt into submission for like the first month. <laughs> you are a little red now yeah. to this day. Still rosy. So I got to ask about that. That is so fascinating to me. So tell me, St. John's, like, I, I really want to, I have a million questions about it because it's an island, you know, so I imagine fish and everything, but you also were bringing a, a kind of New York restaurant concept to an island. Like, how did that, how did you first get approached to to go out there and work? Um, you know, a lot of it started between uh, the big ups and the company. I'm not exactly, uh, exactly sure how it broke down, but I know uh, it involved, uh, you know, Michael Skernick of Skernick Wines. He's the investor down there. Um, he's been in love with St. John, been going down there for about 20 years. Great dude. Um, and, uh, pretty much he was building a house out there. This restaurant space came up, you know, uh, from what I can gather, I think that, you know, all the high ups in the company, the director of operations and CEO and stuff went down, checked it out and just everyone kind of fell in love with it. And, uh, what is it in a town and a city and a country? It's the closest thing you could call a city there. It's uh-huh. called uh, cruise Bay. It's right where the ferry docks. I'd say there's about like 50 little businesses scattered around. It's, it's small, you know, the whole island's small. It's like about 4,500 people at peak occupants. Like, hmm. So it's a tiny place, though. Um, what was kind of cool was, you know, we went down there and, you know, obviously I was like, oh, Tropical Island, like mangoes and papayas and starfruits and all this crap is going to be growing everywhere. And, um, you know, we found out very quickly that the availability of farming down there is kind of shot. Uh, about, I think it's uh, 70 to 80% of the island is wildlife preserve. 
Hmm. So, you know, you have this entire island that's essentially blocked off and the soil so volcanic and, you know, obviously being a tropical island, it's just incredibly expensive to get acreage to do a farm. Yeah, or even just to import foods, right, that you need. That's, like. <laughs> that's the whole, whole next topic. The importing of foods is terrible. But uh, so thank God we found this one beautiful woman. Her name is uh, Josephine uh, Rollins, I believe it is. Uh, she's just an angel. Like she's uh, from Malaysia. She's just the cutest little thing, and just took a shine to us. Uh, she grows everything out there. Like the cilantro oh, okay. that she grows is the best I've had in my life. Huh. Like, three times as thick. Like the leaves are just gorgeous. Like the flavor is just incredible. So. You know, she dealt with a lot of produce, um, a lot of local fishermen who were just, you know, come by. And uh, the way it works out there is like you hire the charter. The charter takes you out. You go have a good time, you know, be it through the Western or whatever hotel you're staying at. And uh, essentially all the fish that you catch, like you still have to pay for at the end because that's how these guys make their money. And then, you know, whatever they don't make fish, their money off of charging you to take the charter. Not because gas is so expensive to ship down there, uh. you know, like the diesel for the boats and everything, like everything. It's, you know, people like would compare us and be like, oh, fatty crab here is more expensive than New York. It's like, dude, like gas is like six dollars a gallon. <laughs> like the only thing that's cheap on that island is booze and smokes. And, you know, it's you can't. Is that how you buy? I mean, how did you facilitate these connections? I mean, because you really didn't have any infrastructure or predecessors to, to look to when you were asked to open a kind of fancy restaurant by their standards right yeah, absolutely um you know we uh we dealt with this company uh i'm not even gonna name it there's one company down there they're essentially like the cisco of the islands and all they can get you is frozen meat and just crappy half rotten produce and you know just awful spices it's it's the worst scenario so um a lot of it came down to like you know for two weeks we we're all jazzed i'm like oh we're gonna make this work and then like i remember you know just sitting there with my chef de cuisine sean hogan I just kind of looked at him. I was like, dude, like, I'm so tired of this shit. So uh, we just kind of started beating the pavement. I went out and just started talking to people. And, uh, you Wait, know, we but found... walked out to a dock or I mean, like, how did, I'm, I'm really interested in like the quotidian, the actual details. Like, did you just uh, have a name of someone and then you walk out and um, how did you set pricing and all these things? It was a little bit of everything, you know, pricing wise. Obviously, we always approach it from a very methodical standpoint, you know, figure out what the dish costs us, you know, all the labor, etc. What can you um, charge down there for dishes? Is it more expensive or less? That's the hard thing, you know, trying to figure out the price point that people want and the style of atmosphere. And, you know, obviously, like. I remember we were doing uh, this beautiful seared tuna dish, like just very elegant, like uh, seared tuna, butter basted, a uh, little salad of like flowering cilantro and like fresh coriander berry and like a little bit of pickled uh, pineapple on the plate. Really beautiful, like uh, an Asian squash puree. And uh, we're selling it on a plastic plate and the reception on it, like people were just like kind of ambiguous. Um, that's kind of the hard sell about, you know, the group. Who were your customers? Because you, you were competing, I guess, with the big hotels that, you know, were probably priding themselves on fancy food and then there's the islanders who probably ate i mean where were the islanders eating or did they even go out that's the thing like everyone kind of goes out on the island because even going to the grocery store is just so damn expensive mm. um you're looking at you know we bought romaine to make like a caesar salad when we were having dinner with friends one night it was like eight dollars for the bag of three like mm. everything is just through the roof um, a box of Kraft mac and cheese. One day I got the blue box blues and I was like, I got to hit this up. It was like six bucks. So, oh, man. Yeah. I mean, dairy, everything's so pricey. So, you know, the locals kind of stick to like uh, the divey spots, you know, the same way we all do here. Like, you know, the kids who start off in the kitchens always hit like those divey, you know, burger joints, like corner bistro and stuff like that. Like, I remember that's where, you know, I went when I started cooking. So it's a lot of that. Um, as far as clientele goes, um, 
you know, a lot of it is about kind of riding the line between the two and being able to say, hey, for the locals, like, you know, we've got this to offer you. And uh, at the same time, like, for all the people coming in, you know, these exorbitant vacationers who want to be in this tropical paradise and stuff, like, we can also offer you this. Mm -hmm. So it kind of creates a a very, you know, bipolar scene almost at the restaurant. But we've, we've managed to walk that line very successfully, which, you know, I think we're all proud of. So uh, what are you proud of, like, of the things that you've done the most? Like, what are you trying to give? I mean, what's your take on restaurants and food and all that? Like, who are you, Finn, within the big uh, picture? You know, like, what what are you about? Um, yeah. I always like to know that. I mean, you know, my grand thing is uh, pretty much I apply my ethics and morals to how I cook and things like that. And that's why I cook with these guys. Um, you know, I went to the fine dining thing and I hated it. And the bottom line is no one wants to work where you're not having fun. Uh, I'm kind of like, this was where Danielle, yeah, Danielle was, uh, Wow. I mean, it was, the learning was incredible, but you know, just standing around, not smiling or joking, just, you know, seeing your bosses and just knowing you're going to get reamed for something retarded. (laughs) It's a, it's a hard scene, you know, and like, it just takes its toll and I'm sitting there and I'm, I remember the exact day when I was like, I got to go back. And I was helping out at uh, Upper West Side Crab all throughout. Like, anytime they needed an extra hand, like, I'd have my two days off from Danielle. I'd go work there. Like, I'd stop in at the end of the night. And I remember, uh, you know, just crazy things. Like, I'd go in to grab a beer. And they'd be like, oh, we need slider pickles. And I'm like, dude, I'll do it. And, like, running downstairs just to get back with it. And uh, I was downstairs peeling salsify in the basement at Danielle one day. And I was like, dude, this blows. Like, uh, you know, I understand putting in your time, but it's just not for me. Like, and, you know, it just wasn't the palate I wanted. It wasn't the environment I wanted. You know, just... It's so much like dog eat dog, and I hate that. And uh, I really just wanted to go back to a place where I could kind of, you know, sow the oats and just be creative and be funny. And what would you call it? Competitive? It's beyond competitive. It's paranoid. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, there's competitiveness, which is normal in a restaurant. It's healthy, and that's how you know you elevate. Like I've always been competitive, like excessively, like you know. Um, and at this point, you know, like, uh, we said, our CEO said the other day, he's like, you know, the best way to get ahead in a group is to obviously hire someone who's if as good, if not better than you. And, you know, you got to always compete and things like that. And I've always, you know, put myself in competition versus anyone, I'm, you know, opening restaurants. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm going to take a prep list. that's 50 items longer than yours. Let's go. Like, let's go. Let's get it on. But now these guys are paranoid of what, of the owner coming in and being like the sucks or a bad review on Yelp. It's, you know, beyond that, like, uh, with the whole fine dining dichotomy, a lot of it is like, no one's there because they love that food. You know, we all, I'm pretty sure everyone in that building can braise a short rib and reduce that, you know, veal stock down, make a beautiful glaçage and, you know, do a dish. It's simplistic food. Everyone's there for that resume. So it's like, you know, the second an opening comes up or anything, like all of a sudden you see dudes who have worked together for nine months and like hang out together and they go out all of a sudden it's like, oh, screw you. Like there's an opening, Mm. like everything is about, you know. You, you come in essentially like you have on each station a uh, chef de party one or two call me and then uh you know prep people who work in the morning and you know obviously i started off as a prep guy and like you know i remember one day i hung out i was watching service it's like nine o'clock at night and uh all of a sudden like the guy who i was prepping for is just like oh you know the prep guys didn't do this right blah 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 it's like there's no accountability it's always just throwing someone under the bus and just you know trying to get ahead like you know god bless that guy he's doing his thing uh he's a tournant there now and he's so happy and he's doing such a great job and we're so proud of you hmm. But uh, it's just like, you know, I'd rather just be able to wake up every day and be like, all right, cool. Like, I'm not an a-hole. Like, I'm going to work with people I care about. And it's not about us. It's about, you know, making the food good and making sure everything's right. Are there any things that you cannot do? 
the, the just a, whether it be a technique or a certain ingredient that you've never been able quite to conquer, or is everything just prepared simply like you can figure anything out? I mean, at this point, you know, Blow a lot fish. of it is trial and error. I haven't tried fugu yet. I got to give it a shot. Um, you know, like I make said, sure not to call me when you're uh, experimenting with that one. Yeah, that's going to be a surprise for Zach. I guess I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. talk about that on the radio. Um, Yelp, I died. My. <laughs> My my family died when we went to Fatty Crab. We <laughs> ate his blowfish. No, uh, but um, are there certain things that you're still like? Is there some horizon out there for you to be like? I'm gonna figure out how to do surf and turf, or you know, to use shrimp in a different way, or you know, is, is it just uh, variations on similar themes? I mean, uh, the great thing about cooking is you know you start with a very fundamental set of skills, and uh, you know you build on that set. Like, the basics, you know, of, like, butchering and, you know, uh, fish cookery and, you know, just overall, like, how you're doing everything essentially stems from a very simple place. Um, I've been fortunate to work with amazing people like, you know, Chef Zach and Dave Arnold and, you know, hanging out with Jacques Pepin and, you know, Jacques Therese and all those guys in culinary school. Like, all those old French guys. Oh, dude, it was great. Like Alain Sayac, uh, Andrew Saltner, yep. and Jacques Pepin, right? Those were your crew, big three. Man. Yeah, it's like, I remember being on the elevator and, like, all of them walk on and I'm like, my first week and, like... <laughs> Right away, like, I step back and trip the alarm so the elevator stops and everyone's looking at me like, I'm, you know, very pale and they turn, like, bright red and, like, you know, let's say they just slaps me on the back. He's like, ah, it's okay. And, you know, flips the button off. Like, so, you know, these are guys and, you know, it's kind of funny, like, as, like, a, you know, a 21-year-old I was when I started school and I was like, I want to do this, this, and this. And, like, every dish was using, you know, a multitude of ingredients and just throwing, like, so much random crap together. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this would be great and this and this. And now it's just like, you know, if I'm going to cook carrots, like, I just want to cook carrots. Like, yeah. I want them to be beautiful and, you know, just kind of rock out. So cool. a lot of it, like, the horizon's definitely just focusing on that, you know, very basic, like, primitive technique. Like, mm-hmm. I got to be a better butcher, that's for sure. You know, I should spend some more time butchering fish. Um, but, well, yeah, we're going to, you're going to stay in when we uh, talk about fish uh, with uh, Michael Dimon, uh, one of the main, like, guys for sustainable fisheries but i want to ask you goats give me a headline oh man how was it you brought in the a goat best. a week for four weeks that yeah. was unbelievable four weeks a goat and uh generally the day it was on the menu was the day it sold out people just mm. loved it and you know it's just such an untapped market in the states like we underplay it so much you know we did i'd say probably between like you know the tastings of you guys coming in oh the guys man that was so Bardwell. special like, and the farmers came, Margo, and they've been to a few restaurants. Yeah, Margo, Paul, all those. But dudes man, they uh, fatty crab was uh, could not have been a better place to send them. It literally was one of the best events of their life, from what they told me. And the way you came out and would describe it, and we would like, what did Finn just describe that dish? Did did he use the word gonad? We're like because you were like being very funny and very quick, and I was like, I gotta get this guy on radio because just the way you described what each dish was, we were like talking about it for ten minutes. And you, I loved how you brought out four portions for everybody, so everyone got to taste everything. You know, you didn't miss anything. It was a really, really great meal. And Zach and Corwin are lucky to to have you manning that ship because um, I, I really one of the best meals I've ever had there. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us and i'm happy you're going to stay in we're going to take a very short break and come in with the fish maestro to talk shrimp
We are back with the owner of uh, Seat at Table, uh, Michael Dimon, and uh, we had a great segue uh, with Finn talking about St. John's. He opened a restaurant in St. John's and befriended all the local fishermen there, and now we're with the man himself, dedicated 100% to sustainability. And I read with great fascination always your very, very long emails about that really educate people about the issues. Um, I recommend everyone sign up to that Seat at Table weekly email. And this week's concentrated on shrimp. Shrimp is America's favorite seafood. Isn't that wild? Mm -hmm. What is it? Why is that? Because of the taste? They lot people like Shrimp. I like it, shrimp. I'm not sure why, but... But now do. most of it is imported. Uh, almost 90% of all shrimp in the U.S. comes from outside the U.S., with a, a preponderance of it coming from Asia and farm-raised in conditions that you wouldn't really appreciate if now, you were there. shrimp suffer? Or what is the, is it just the waste? Uh, uh, this is not compassion for shrimp. It's not, a, it's not a function of shrimp compassion. It's a function of what people get in the shrimp that they eat. Um, the ponds are traditionally very, um, uh, they're not properly circulated at all. So the shrimp kind of live in their own mm. waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when things live in their waste, they develop diseases. So to combat that, they fill these ponds with antibiotics. Mm. So the shrimp become full of antibiotics. And not only do they not taste as good, which we all know is high on the list of important things with food. Especially at the great restaurants that you sell to. Amen. Uh, But they are actually not necessarily so very good for you. Now, um, it vary a lot of similarities with goats, which we were just talking about, because most of those are imported from Australia and New Zealand, and yet... The very people who raise goats here in the States suffer. So our own local farmers are suffering, and you can liken that to the shrimp uh, farmers in the Gulf. That, now tell us about what they're going through. Clearly true. Clearly true. Um, shrimp, because of all the foreign shrimp and price competition, it's been a lot of pressure for many years now on U.S. shrimpers in the Gulf and even in the South Atlantic. To come down on price. To have to compete with things that are produced in uh, kind of not the best ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have to, and they're required to do things in a proper way. Uh, the management systems require that they um, use uh, turtle exclusion devices and have bycatch reduction devices. And they're seasonally controlled in what they can do. Now, uh, tell me real quick, what, uh, just to break down some questions on this, uh, do you agree with all of these uh, sanctions? I mean, are all these sanctions well-informed, or are some of them misinformed? Um, I think they're mostly pretty good. Um, I think that the people doing the management are pretty smart, and although uh, nothing is perfect. Because they're not fishermen. Mm, A lot of them are, actually. Uh, Some of them are are bureaucrats. Right. But um, but actually, a lot of them do the right thing, and the way they organize the management systems, it's pretty much a conglomeration of all the different constituents. Hmm. So you get representation from fishermen, from uh, environmental groups, from you know people on the ground, as well as scientists. Mm-hmm. So usually, from all the discussions and arguments that come from these meetings, come fairly reasonable and pretty smart rules that have okay. been working in U.S. fisheries pretty well. Now, next uh, tangential question based off of your, that one sentence you said, how does one sh- uh, fish for shrimp? Um, it's, What's the process? It's, uh, it's a net. 
You drag a net. It's called an otter trawl. It's, um, you drag a net through the middle of the water, usually at night, because that's when the shrimp come up. So not the floor, not the, not bottom. the top. Correct. Uh, in the middle where the shrimp come, usually at night, because they come up from the, they usually are lower during the day. Mm-hmm. They come up, and um, that's usually when the shrimp are caught. And now you were talking about in your email white shrimp. And mm-hmm. uh, so tell us a little bit about what's in season now. There's a bunch of subspecies. Um, the three, uh, well, there's four main shrimp that we deal with. They're white shrimp, which are, are, are lovely good. Brown shrimp you see a lot. They're, uh, um, they're a, little more, um, uh, a little more flavorful than a white shrimp. There are pink shrimp and there are the uh, royal reds. What's in the shrimp cocktail most of the time? White shrimp usually, and brown shrimp a lot. Okay. Now, what is Seat to Table doing to help reverse this 90-10? This, uh, you know, it's always this Wall Street thing, this 99%. Right, right. We're we're, we're also supporting... um, Occupy uh, Wall Street? The the, the Occupy Wall Street. So how are you uh, supporting, you know, Occupy, uh, you know, foreign shrimp and supporting local fishermen? The, um, well, we're trying to create some better markets for local shrimpers, and by doing that, we're, we're going directly to the fisheries, working with guys landing uh, in the Gulf. We work with guys in Port St. Joe, Florida. Okay. And we're working with, now with guys out near St. Augustine who uh, uh, are fishing shrimp off the St. John's River in Florida. And how do you drive commerce? Do uh, chefs call you? Now, most of your business right now is uh, chefs, right? We work with restaurants all over the country and uh, a growing list of progressive chefs. Uh, and what we try to do is develop better opportunities for the fishermen and hopefully some better products for chefs. Now, do you drive, do you call the chefs or do they call you? Or do you commit to a certain tonnage of shrimp or do you just buy what you can sell? Uh, we actually have a, we're actually starting to commit to boats to take a lot of their catch so that mm-hmm. we make sure we have enough supply because that's a tricky thing, as you know, mm-hmm. to match supply and demand yeah um that's, i'm like short everyone two pounds that's and then a, that's let's it. see where or, we are or you have too much yes you have a, there are two ways to to be mm-hmm. um but um uh, finn has seen that short two bellies but never more you know because he buys a lot so yeah. you try to screw everyone equally <laughs> but um so and what else well i've got to ask you i mean uh this is such a fascinating story i, I tell the story wherever i go can you talk just real briefly about the anchovy, the limitless supplies of anchovies from uh, the South Pole, and then, and one of your ideas on how to actually change the diets uh, and nutritional situation for people around the world? It's a it's a very funny thing. The, the world's greatest upwelling of protein comes actually from Antarctica, <clears throat> feeds into the Humboldt Current, and floats past Peru. And there's a large traditional fishery in Peru that goes and fishes what they call the anchovita. The anchovies um, uh, come up the Humboldt Current in numbers that are staggering. Almost limitless, it seems. Well, it seemed that way 20 or 30 years ago until, like, mechanized fishing vessels went out there and applied technology to, uh, to harvest as much as they possibly could. And they actually saw numbers starting to go down. Uh, the Peruvian authorities developed a management plan 20, 25 years ago now that took some years to come into effect, but it's actually been working, mm-hmm. and the numbers came back. 
they actually pull something between 8 and 10 million tons. I don't even know how many zeros that is of anchovy each year from the anchovita. And now it's being used in weird things. It's not being used for human food, is it? What it's being used for is fish food. It's ground and fed back to salmon on farms. And it takes kind of between three and six pounds of wild fish to feed to these farm fish to make a pound of salmon, which doesn't seem like a really good equation. Especially because anchovies are delicious. I mean, these are edible anchovies that humans could be eating. It's It's used for fish oil. It's used for fertilizer, uh, but it really should be used to have humans eat. It mm. really is a very delicious fish, and that's an idea that I've been working on with a couple of people. We're uh, we're still we're that still change the world. Well, I think it's a pretty way. I think it's a pretty interesting thing. There's a lot of folks that need protein, especially in Asia, big growing populations, and if there's a way to get those to them and mm-hmm. effectively use them as human food. Mm-hmm. It's stuff is super high in omega threes and omega sixes. It's it's super good protein. Any other uh, big things that we should know about on see the table? Because I mean, I was thinking we need to have you on for like a a fish month or fish week, and we really concentrate across all the shows, you know, through through the lens of sustainable fisheries. Because these are true wild foods. Uh, there's no messing around. I mean, when they become extinct, they're they're extinct. Uh, Fishermen are the last real wild hunters on earth. Uh, wild fishermen go out there and they kind of like face the elements and it's a very challenging and difficult job and they're the last real true hunters on earth and it is cool and we also believe that every month is fish month every month is fish month is there a season for is there a holiday i know is the christmas goose thanksgiving turkey how does it work with fish are there holidays in the in this period related to fish there's you know there are the myths of easter and such that uh uh you know, give a man a fish and he eats for a day and teach a man to fish and he eats for life. Sure. Um, and then there's the seven fishes, right? The holiday of that, the seven fishes. What my, fish one is of my that? Fi- one of my favorite meals. That's, a, that's um, uh, supposedly an Italian tradition, but I think it may really be American. Uh, but uh, we, we actually celebrate that. Mm-hmm. We, uh, on Christmas Eve, we all get together and figure out seven different fishes to prepare mm-hmm. and have a feast. You'll have to come and join us sometime. Oh, my God. I'd love to. And I want to have you over and YouTube in for, for goose, uh, December goose dinners at me and Anne's because uh, I'm a big fan of the goose. And um, I'm a big fan of what you do. It's uh, We're absolutely aligned, our two missions. And we really put our money where our mouth is. And if we don't have enough product, we don't sell it. You know, we'll never go commodity and there's a lot of farms that you know rely on groups like us so i'm a big fan and uh anytime you want to come on the station any news any issues that we should uh uh concern ourselves with uh you know you have carte blanche to to use this uh radio station as a vehicle for your message patrick you know we feel the same way about you and love what you guys do and uh are glad that we're friends yes very very glad well i mean you deserved absolutely 10 times more uh, time uh, today, but um, we are engineered by Jack Inslee um, and produced by Jack Inslee. Jack is a jack of all trades. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jack, for everything. Uh, we're about to come with another show, Katie's show, called Straight No Chaser. Thanks. I have one more thing to add. Yo. End the NBA lockout. End the NBA lockout. Yeah, they don't even seem close, those poor guys. Not well, even poor close. guys. There's nothing poor about them. No. 51, 52%. Come on, get the season going. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Mike.
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Food Karma. To kick off the New York City Meat Week in style, Meat with a Twist will bring together the best chefs and mixologists for a cocktail food pairing party on November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Meat with a Twist features 10 cocktails paired with 10 chef selections highlighting local, sustainably grown meat such as duck, lamb, chicken, pork, beef, bison, and ostrich. The party will launch a week's worth of events throughout the city that celebrate the slow food movement bringing sustainable meats to our tables. Again, that's November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Updates, tickets, and more information are available at meatweeknyc.com.